I am in Houston, Texas with former NFL and Canadian Football League running back Alex Green. We're here to talk about life, talk about football, and so many other things involving recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. But first, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. How have you adjusted to life outside of football? Um, I'm taking life on life terms. You know, uh, I'm taking it slow day by day and uh, not looking too far ahead and not going on the pass and just staying at an even kill. Why is it important for you to get your message and story out now? Um, I just know the impact it has um, when you have somebody who, who can reach out, man, and be a support group in your, you know, in your corner. Um, when you're down that deep hole, man, it's hard to, to believe that there's help out there. And so, uh, you know, I just believe in the importance of reaching out and being a reliable resource of somebody who might need help. You've got an amazing story, starting out in Oregon, playing at the University of Hawaii, playing for the Green Bay Packers, and then playing in the Canadian Football League. Who fostered your love for football? Um, I grew up watching Barry Sanders play. You know, uh, me and my brothers, man, we always go outside and play ball, and my mom got us into sports early. And so uh, I just fell in love with the game at about seven years old, man, and ever since then I didn't look back. Growing up in Portland, what was your family situation like? Uh, it was great. We had a big family, blended family. Um, you know, mom's work, you know, dad worked, and uh, the kids for us, we went to school and at, in the evenings when I decided to go play. You know, we played all day, came in for dinner, and went to bed at night. You know, it was, it was an even kill. Uh, you know, a lot of fights between the brothers, you know, and competitive nature. And, uh, you know, we just had fun, man. We traveled a lot. You know, we had fun growing up. It was a good time. How much did those competitive fights fuel you to become the, the, the player that you were and, and everything going on uh, today? Uh, well, being the second to the youngest, uh, being the youngest up until seven years old, man, it filled me. You know, I was the last one to always do everything, you know, and so uh, it helped me uh, grow a lot, you know, uh, see the mistakes that my other bros made and see the successes they had, and it helped me navigate through life and making good choices. When was the moment that you realized I love football and I can do this for a living? Uh, when I realized I could do it for a living, that didn't come until I finished college in Hawaii. Um, I first fell in love with it when I was about nine, when I had my first touchdown in the flag football league. Right. What do you remember from that play? Uh, I remember getting a kickoff return. Uh, the ball fell out of my hands. I remember picking it up, man, and just running. And I had these big, long flags flying from behind me. And I remember just uh, looking back to see if my flag was on there. My coach thought I was taunting, looking back at the opponent. But I really checked to see if my flag was still on. And then when I scored, man, I seen how the crowd erupted. And everybody was so proud. And it was probably one of the best feelings I had in a long time, you know, at that time playing, playing the sport. And so, you know, that's when I first fell in love with it. Taunting has become such a popular call in the NFL these days for a penalty call. What's your takeaway on the, the officiating in the NFL when it comes to personal conduct? Like I said, man, you know, I grew up in a competitive family, and so to me, that's just having fun. You know, I think that's just, you know, I just having some swag when you're playing the game and having fun with it. And, you know, it's always fun when you got an opponent talking trash to you, talk trash back, and you can back it up. From high school in Portland to playing junior college, Butte College, and then going to Hawaii, how much growth did it take to go and play at the D1 level? It took a lot of growth, man. Not just physically, uh, body changing, you know, we're getting a better nutrition plan, but uh, just mentally, you know, uh, dealing with going to meetings, um, you know, five, six in the morning, going to practice, you know, doing class all day, and then going back to a study hall, and then going to watch film, and then 
maybe another one-on-one session with a tutor. You know, you might not get to bed till about eight, nine o'clock, you know, and do it all over again the next day. And so mentally it was the biggest jump, you know, just managing our time and being responsible and uh, staying disciplined in our work. Mm -hmm. You set the single game rushing record at Hawaii, 327 yards. No one has come even close to breaking that since then. What enabled you to take your game to the next level at Hawaii? Just staying disciplined, man, you know, and uh, let me go back in that 327. That was on 19 carries, too. I don't want to brag, but, you know, that was on 19 carries, you know. And uh, it, it was just, man, it was one of those things where, you know, you start having success, and then you start hearing the buzz about going to the league and, you know, making that next step to the next level. And you can go one of two ways. You know, you can let it get to your head, or you can stay grounded in your work and keep grinding to get to that level. And so I just chose the, the rabbit, man, and just stay grounded in my work. And just kept putting the work in, man, try to get better and better and better. I remember telling my coach my junior year, I'm going to break the record one day. You know, and I was halfway joking, but I was halfway serious, too. And at that time, I was thinking like 290 by Travis Sims back in 92. But um, I had my goals set up, man. And once I accomplished it, I knew, okay, I got the ability to take the thing to the next level, and I did. How much confidence did that Hawaii staff give you over your years there they gave me tons of confidence man when i first signed there i had an offer to go to liberty university in virginia and uh their circumstances they're, they're christian school and so they wanted me to cut my hair it's either cut my hair and go there where i get 22 carries a game or go to hawaii where i get about on average eight or nine carries a game and beat as a, a, a blocking back so i chose hawaii man because coach rolovich you know great coach and brian smith oh those guys man they they believed in me and gave me a chance to to really shine and, and display my skill set so it was a matter of hair or no hair? Yeah, it was a matter of hair or no hair. I wasn't going to cut my hair. Because anyone else in that circumstance would want to get the bigger workload, get more exposure, get more eyes on them. And it was just more of a philosophy thing for you? Yeah, for me, man, it just, you know, I just, you know, I'm more of a, you know, I stand on what I believe in, you know, and, and I grew my hair out as a way, you know, to represent, like, my struggles and the growth that I made in my life. No, I didn't want to cut that short at a, at a critical point in my life, so I kept my hair as a testimony and as a resemblance of my growth throughout my years. What struggles did you have to deal with early in life? Um, man, just going through uh, learning disabilities, having dyslexia, um, coming up. I didn't get diagnosed until I was in Hawaii. Um, you know, not being the fastest, biggest, strongest kid. Um, you know, being overlooked, coming from a small town, Portland, Oregon, being overlooked by big colleges. You know, going to junior college, having struggles there. You know, and, and, and eating situations and living situations weren't ideal, you know, and, and really having to grind. And uh, there was a lot of adversity I overcame, man. Me and a lot of guys there were just really putting some work in. We had a, a big dream and a big goal. How did the University of Hawaii diagnose and help treat your dyslexia? Um, I was doing tutors one day, and uh, the lady took me in, and um, named Christine. She took me in and uh, she just had me read over some books and I struggled to read and she asked me if I ever got tested for learning disability and I told her no. And so two days later I did a test and sure enough I came back with uh, dyslexia and um, ADD. And so, uh, you know, she got me to help. You know, I got some audio books for my, uh, for my work and um, a little extra tutoring and, and, and focus on that and, and academic help. And, you know, slowly but surely it started working out, man. And everything started opening up for me. You know, life got a little easier. You know, and I had a little more time on my test, do my test, and, you know, everything worked out. And you mentioned the food situation. In Portland, how much of a struggle was it day-to-day -day for your parents and your brothers to be comfortable? 
Man, my mom was the best thing that happened to me and this earth. You know, she grind every day, all day. I remember her waking up at five in the morning to go wash dishes. You know, she'll wash the laundry, you know, then she'll cook breakfast and then wake us up for school, you know, then go to work, get off work, pick us up, you know, take us to practice, you know, pick us up from practice, go home, get us to bed, have dinner ready, you know. And she always, she always, man, for, for 20 plus years, she always been uh, a strong woman, you know, fighting through a lot and pitting us first. And, uh, you know, she always made sure there was food on the table. You know, she always made sure that we was fed and, and, and we lived the best life possible and to be successful. Where is she now? She's back in Portland still. She's still at home in Portland. Did she ever get a chance to see you play either at Hawaii or in Green Bay? Absolutely, man. It was funny because uh, when I was in Hawaii, she would go to every away game. And uh, I would have my best games in my away games, so they called her the good luck mom. So they started wanting her to be at the away games, you know, because I always had my best games there. And so, you know, she's like my good luck charm. What kind of good luck does she bring you these days? Man, she bring me positivity. You know, she bring me good energy. You know, she always got my back. You know, win, lose, or draw, she's going to be there. And that's somebody I can rely on no matter what I do in my life. You were a top-rated running back going into the draft. You could pass protect really well. You had really good hands. The, the national analyst said you were good catching running back. And you could have a lot of success on this Green Bay team back then. How much pressure did you feel to live up to that expectation? Um... I felt as much pressure as any rookie would come in going through around 96 pick overall. Um, you know, I was just a young kid, man, that was grateful for the opportunity. I knew my skill set, I knew what I could do. And uh, I came in ready to put the work in to be the best I can be and take the thing to the next level. Um, you know, unfortunately, things didn't work out with injuries, week seven in Minnesota, but, you know, I'm forever grateful for the opportunity. Week seven in Minnesota, you tear your ACL. What do you remember from that play? Uh, I remember a loud crowd. Uh, I remember them kicking the ball off. Man running on the cop was back deep. And uh, the ball go to cop to the right. I'm blocking on the left. I go up to engage my guy, and I just get hit from the back. Uh, cop get tackled into my leg, and I'm on the ground holding my knee for about 30 seconds. And uh, I remember getting up, man, and, 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 and shaking it off and walking to the sideline on my own wheel. And uh, I thought I was fine, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, I wasn't fine. I had a Tory CL, and so I remember going to the locker room and Ted Thompson, at that time the GM, told me I had a Tory CL and I'm going to be out for the season. And I thought, you know, I didn't know the game and the business, so I thought I was done. I thought I was completely done with football. And so I started crying, man, and, and he came back and he told me, you know, get you stitched up and back out there next year. And so I kind of cheered up and then uh, put a brace on, take a shower. Uh, hopped up some crutches, went back on the field, put my team the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. How did your teammates react to your injury? It was devastated, man. You know, I, I mean, you know, people don't know this, but uh, that was my breakout game. So they got packages. We got different packages for different plays. And so we had Zebra, which means the extra receiver come in. And we got Tiger, which means the extra tight end come in. And they was tagged with numbers. I was number 20, so we had Zebra 20 and Tiger 20. And that whole week, we've been preparing for screens and outside zones for me to get the ball to get my my get my shot if you will and uh before i could man i went out on special teams and got hurt you know so my teammates they understood that that was my time to really showcase my skill set in the big national stage and it just didn't happen you know god had different plans for me when an opportunity like that was taken away how did you cope with those feelings um i didn't cope with them i ran from them and i ran straight to liquor uh every day after treatment um I would go home and I would drink myself to sleep. And, uh, you know, I would smoke weed and, and I would just 
try to avoid the reality of that I'm not playing no more and have all this free time, you know, and football was what I did for, like I said, since seven years old. And now it got taken away from me at the highest stage, reaching my dreams, you know, since a kid. And uh, I couldn't deal with it, man. It was the hardest thing I probably had to face besides going through this addiction in my life. And so I just coped with it from going to drugs and alcohol. Why did the solution become alcohol? That was, at that time, the only outlet I knew that would take the pain away. Um, I wasn't a big talker. I wasn't big on therapy. Um, I never really talked about it with my friends. No, we grew up, no, boys don't cry. No, you don't show emotions. Um, so to deal with that pain and that emotion, man, I just, uh, I knew that if I do drugs and alcohol, that I won't feel it no more. And I won't think about it. And so I was trying to avoid thinking about it as much as I could. And that was the best way at that time I knew how, being 23 years old. Mm-hmm. How much influence did you have in speeding up your timetable and trying to get back out on the field? Man, that was the biggest thing. I was, the only thing I was focused on was getting back. How can I get back as quickly as possible? And um, I remember, you know, trainers were telling me I'm healing fast and I had a great surgery. Dr. McKinney did a great job. I had great trainers in Flea and, and uh, Brian. And, uh, you know, everything was going good. I was healing fast. The swelling was going down. I was able to, to bend my knee. I had range of motion. I was doing range of motion twice a week. And each, each time I would do it, I would get a little, couple more inches of range. Um, once I started being able to bend and walk, I was walking fast, I started running fast. You know, I was able to cut, I started cutting at about five, six months. And um, I started feeling good, I was getting stronger. Um, at this point, I stopped drinking as much um, to get my body back in shape and it helped the healing process. And you know, things was going great. If the article was coming out about how fast I was healing, so I was just high on that. I would just focus on that, not knowing that, you know, it's a long-term deal and you know my body is my business and i need to focus on a long-term recovery rather than a short term because as soon as i came back you know i was out just as fast because the injuries kept happening later on the season did anyone advise you to take it slow um no i had a couple of guys and a couple of trainers you know just asked me how i felt and i kept telling them i felt good because i did feel good and um as long as i kept saying i felt good you know despite the swelling despite the soreness as long as I felt good, you know, then I complained. I'm a, and I knew the business at this point, you know, I've seen guys come and go. I was already a year in. I went through a full off season already, and this is my shot to play. They didn't draft the running back in 2012, so it was me and James Starks in the backfield uh, with a Brandon Sand on practice squad. And um, I just knew that if I say I'm hurt, this is my way out the door. And so as long as I say I'm fine and I'm okay, I got a chance to continue to play. How much of a relationship have you maintained with that training staff or with Coach Mike McCarthy? Uh, it was great, man. You know, they gave me opportunity to, to, to live out my childhood dream, you know, so I'm gonna always forever respect Green Bay and the staff. Uh, McCarthy, you know, he's a straight, narrow guy. You know, he had a military background, so he kept things, you know, just, just you know, just straight shooter. You know, he don't really bullshit you. He don't cut around the edges. You know, he'll give it to you straight. And he told me just straight up, you know, I just didn't make enough plays. You know, and with the training staff, with fleeing them, uh, you know, that was good, man. They made sure that I was staying mentally prepared and making sure they gave me they gave me some advice about going into a game and how I feel coming out of a game and that soreness was natural, you know, which it was. And, you know, I could have just did a better job of myself being a young kid of knowing the business and being more prepared, you know, of just the whole recovery process. 
it is kind of a business relationship. Do you ever catch up with those people you know, 10 years later? Um, no, I haven't really talked to them. I haven't really talked to them. Uh, I know if I go back, it's all love. Uh, you know, I actually uh, ran into Flea in 2014 during the Super Bowl when New York Giants played Seattle, uh, excuse me, uh, Denver Broncos played the Seattle Seahawks. And, uh, you know, it was all love, you know, good relationship, you know, check on the family. And, you know, when you're in the game, that's the business. You know, but outside of that, man, it's family. You were at the Super Bowl? Yep. Yep. How'd you land that? Uh, playing with the Jets, you know, they give us tickets, you know, and so you got, you got an option to purchase tickets for a cheaper price once you're a current player. And so uh, I got two tickets and took my stepdad to the Super Bowl. Congratulations. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Why is the game harder on running backs? Um, I mean, besides the obvious of the, the wear and tear and, you know, just the, the, the total beating you take on, I think it's just it's just uh, the way the game is played now. You know, you got to be able to pass block. You know, you pass blocking against 250-pound beast who come at a five-yard head start on you. You know, you got to be able to run the ball between the tackles, so you're going against 290-pound linemen with 3% body fat. Then you got to be able to catch the ball at the backfield. So now you got to be able to cut and make the decent, you know, uh, movements with your body that, you know, most athletes can't make. <sighs> you got pulled into drugs and alcohol, particularly weed on the drug side, but alcohol, starting when you tore your ACL. How frequently did that become a habit after you dealt with that injury? At that point, it was still manageable. Um, it didn't really get out of control. I was able to stop and shut it down when I had to. Um, the focus of my recovery as far as my ACL go. Um, it didn't become a problem until later after I got done playing football to where it became unmanageable and I couldn't handle it no more. And when was that? That was in 2019 when it started to get unmanageable. And that was after going back to the CFL to play up there. And um, you know, when I was fully done with football, and I'm back in that same spin cycle of trying to find who I am and re-identify myself and running away from problems. Yeah. How much of an identity crisis was it after football? Um, it was, it was uh, the biggest ass whooping I had, you know, re-identifying myself and figure out who I was. Because my whole life, like I said, since seven years old, I was the football player. And that's what I loved to do. That's what I was known for. And so once I got done, I had to look at myself in the mirror and realize who I was. And I couldn't figure out an answer for a long time. And so I had to dig deep, deep. And uh, you know, I tried to find different things going to coaching and personal trainings and different things to kind of re-identify myself, if you will. But it was hard for me, man, to figure out who I was and what I stood for and what I believed in and what I wanted to do in my post-career. While you were going through addiction, what did you believe or paint yourself as in terms of identity? Um, while I was going through addiction, man, I wanted to be the guy who I am today. That's what drove me crazy because I knew I was a great father. I knew I was a loving and caring person, you know, son, brother, and friend. I knew I could be a great mentor to my community. And I knew that, you know, I can take what I have learned in my experiences and give back to somebody who might be able to help them. And I wasn't doing any of those. I was doing the exact opposite. I wasn't being a great friend. I wasn't being a great brother. I wasn't being a great son. I wasn't being a great father. You know, I wasn't coaching kids. You know, I wasn't helping them out. You know, I wasn't giving them any advice because I couldn't give myself advice. And I became the person who I would preach of not to be 
And, you know, at a certain point, man, it got to a point where I, I wanted to stop living that way and make a change. Mm-hmm. How did those habits manifest themselves when you said you were doing the opposite of, of what you aspired to be? Um, it just kept slapping me in the face, man. It just kept, it just kept presenting itself in the form of self-hate. It just kept, uh, you know, I just kept doing things like not checking on my moms, not checking on my kids, you know, not providing, not looking for employment, you know, not being motivated and encouraging the others, um, not giving myself the best opportunity to be successful, you know, and, and, and hanging out late at night, you know, and avoiding responsibilities, you know, avoiding problems, you know, and, and it, it, it just kept presenting itself, man. And I realized after a while that I'm just, I'm just using this, you know, this is all just a form of self-hate that I was swimming in and I couldn't get out of it. When did that reach the lowest point? I got to the lowest point, man. It was uh, to the day. It might have been about three months ago. And um, I was in a car. I had a big bottle of alcohol and a big bottle of weed. And I was playing a tape back about me going through around 96 pick, the Green Bay Packers, running Super Bowl champions. You know, I was, I was thinking about... 327 yards, three touchdowns and 19 carries. You know, I was thinking about all the adversities I faced in junior college, winning a national championship after eating twice a day. You know, I was thinking about growing up, you know, with seven brothers in the house, mom working all day long. I was thinking about all these things that I overcome and the successes that I had. And here I was in the car with a bottle of liquor and a big bag of weed. And I didn't care what the end result was. I was going to drink till I came no more. I was going to smoke till I came no more. I didn't care what happened. I just pass out in the car, if I wake up or not, it didn't matter no more. And that's when I realized man, I ain't the lowest point of my life. And once I realized that, I made one of the most important phone calls of my life, besides getting drafted, it's huger than that. And that was the call to go get help. Who did you call? So I called my program manager, um, who's uh, been my program manager since playing in the NFL, Shay Davis-Williams. And... Um, no, for the past seven years of me getting done with the NFL, I thought her number was an office number. For seven years, that was an office number. And I texted, and I said, I need help. Now, mind you, I'm texting the number as an excuse to tell myself that I'm texting somebody. I'm telling somebody I need help as an excuse to keep drinking and using. And as I'm texting this, I get a call back from the same number. I let it go to voicemail. And I checked the voicemail and said, hey, Alex, this is Lachey. Give me a call back. I got your message. And I'm like, holy shit, this is a real phone. For seven years, I thought it was an office phone. I was trying to make an excuse. She called back. I called her back. And um, she said, hey, what's going on? And the tears just started flowing up. Man. I had a bucket of tears in the car. And I told her my story. I told her what was going on. I told her how I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know who I am. I need help. And... She sat on the phone with me for about an hour and a half. She even had her young newborn son in the background crying, and she put all that aside to hear, to hear me out. And she let me talk. She let me vent. She let me cry. And she said, okay, I'm going to see you in Jacksonville, Florida, for 45 days at a treatment facility. We're going to get you help. And so I went to the inpatient, man, two days later, you know, and, 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 and tears in my eyes, hopped that flight and made the best decision that uh, I could have made. You hopped on the flight from where? From Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I was living in Portland at that time. You know, my family and, uh, you know, just trying to figure life out back at my stomping grounds. And, you know, uh, life became unmanageable. 
And when you say program manager, from my knowledge, uh, who was she affiliated with? She affiliated with the NFLPA. Okay. In the trust program. Okay. And so they do a good job, man, of keeping guys uh, engaged with with career opportunities. Um, if you want to start a foundation, they'll assist with that. Uh, continuing education, going back to school, um, and just helping guys transition from life after football. And I never really took advantage of the opportunity that was there for me. And uh, thinking I had it all figured out, had everything on my own, thinking I know it all, which I didn't. And um, when I did finally reach out to her, it was for that reason. It's because my life had become unmanageable, man. And she, uh, she got me the help that I needed. She still works there? She still works there to this day, yep. That's honorable. What were the next steps that you had to take when you got on that flight and went to Jacksonville and sought help? I was putting my pride aside. I had to figure it out. I ran for 327 yards, three touchdowns, and 19 carries against New Mexico State and broke the record. My name stands to this day in Hawaii record books. Most single season, single game rushing record. I went third round 96 picks and the running Super Bowl champions, getting carries from Aaron Rodgers, playing with Charles Wilson, Clay Matthews, right? Jermichael Finley, Jordy Nelson, you, you name it, right? Under a great coach McCarthy. I, I got it all figured out. I know everything. <laughs> I'm not like you guys, I'm different. You know, I did this. I accomplished this much. And um, so I had a lot of pride, man, a lot of ego, you know, uh, a lot of isolation, thinking that I was different. Man, I wasn't no different than the guy who was on the street with a needle hanging out of his arm. I was in the same treatment facility as him. And so me getting on that plane, man, it took a lot of pride and to, to admit that I don't have it figured out. You know, my life is not manageable. I do need help, and I cannot do this alone. You learned that you didn't have a lot of things figured out. When you look back on your football career, what regrets do you have? The main regret I have is not taking my blessing seriously enough to where I'm giving it everything I got every single day on this field. You know, still smoking, still drinking, not maxing out my opportunities to go watch film not getting the treatment I needed during my recovery of my ACL, you know, not asking the right questions, you know, in the off season, not going to a top-notch program to get my body in tip-top shape, you know, and not using the best knowledge and getting advice on how to use my financials and just being, just, just being on top of it, you know, and just, and just being a true professional. That was probably my biggest regrets. Mm-hmm. What motivates you? Uh, my pain, man, the struggles. You know, thinking about those times, thinking about me being in the car with a bag of weed and a bottle of liquor, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, walking around, you know, with no motive, you know, with no goals, no aspirations, you know, not talking to my kids, you know, and feeling the pain from them when I do talk to them, not talking to my mom and seeing the tears in her eyes, you know, not having relationships with my brothers, you know, and, and just not being that, that, that impact, you know, in the community based off the life that I live to be able to give back. Not too many people come from where I'm from that did what I did at that level, as high as that level. And so that's what keep me grounded. That's what keep me motivated, knowing how bad it felt to not live my truth, you know, to not walk the path that I know God got set off for me. How long have you been sober? I'm on 85 days today. 85, congratulations. Yeah, I'm on 85 days today. Why are you sharing your story now? Because I know how hard it was, man. And, and me going through it, um, it's funny because just before this interview, I was going over some notes that I took during my 45-day inpatient. 
And um, I was looking back at day one, two, and three, and day 12, and day 20, and, 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 and I realized that, man, it was harder. I went into it still not believing that it was that difficult for me, you know, not believing that I was a true addict and that I had a problem. And so knowing that I know how many people out there, you know, who still sick and still suffering, you know, and people who need help, man, it might take that one person, like a Lachey Davis Williams, I could be that person for somebody else who might need the help. And there's resources out there for us, man, just taking the step, and it might just take that one person to come out with their story to get them the courage to get help. What will you do to raise awareness and help others? Um, I'm gonna continue to do, you know, stories. I'm gonna continue to share the message. I'm continue to go through life and get my experiences and share my truth, um, and to reach out. You know, uh, I had somebody reach out to me, man, and 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 share their truth with me, and it's, it literally saved my life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only a few outcomes that come with this, and that's going to treatment, dead or in jail. Who inspires you? I'm inspired by my mom, man. She inspired me. You know, just seeing her grind and, and go through her struggles, and she lost her dad at an early age. Um, she lost her mother just a couple of years ago, you know, and she still holds strong, you know, even through my addiction. She never stopped loving me. She never stopped caring for me and providing for me. And I, as I'm older now, I see all the work she put in since we was kids, man. And it was hard. You know, she was in a house full of all men. And she still held her head up, you know, and, and still woke up every day and put the work in every single day. She took it day by day, one day at a time. You mentioned also you have children. What kind of father do you aspire to be for them? Um, a loving father, man, supportive one. Uh, you know, be that type of father who showed the same love my mom showed me, this unconditional love, be somebody who they can come to, you know, and, and, and knowing that I have their back no matter what decisions they choose to make in life and be that positive role model. Why is it important to stay sober for them? Because I understand the impact it had on them when I wasn't sober, you know, uh, the distance that it caused um, in our relationship and seeing them go through that pain that I've caused, you know, I would never go back to that. And so that motivated me every day, man, to make sure I'm sober and that I'm actually present in their lives. 85 days being sober, how much healing has occurred between you and your family? <laughs> There's so much healing, man. You know, just even just thinking about 85 days, you know, it's huge, but I also take it one day at a time. You know, we're talking about 85 days compared to forever. So I got a long way to go. I came a long way, man. I, you know, and uh, I'm still growing and learning every day, but I'm making sure that I'm staying grounded in my step work talking to my sponsors, going to treatment, seeing my therapist, they working out, they talking to my kids and just taking it day by day. Mm-hmm. Who from your professional career do you still keep in touch with? Uh, I keep in touch with a few guys, man. I got a good friend, Shaky Smithson. He played at Utah, played with me in Green Bay. Uh, Devon Howard played in Green Bay, went to Jacksonville, had a successful career. Uh, I talked to Jermichael Finley still, James Starks. You know, I talked to Charles Woodson, support his wine company he got. And so, you know, there's a few guys, man, that uh, I keep in contact with from Green Bay. You know, Bilal Powell, Chris Ivory from the Jets. How much do you follow Packers and Jets? I don't follow the Jets that much. They don't, they don't really interest me. I don't really care for the Jets, but I follow the Packers, though. They're always forever. They got an opportunity to live my childhood dream, you know, and to be able to give back and share experiences. So I'm forever locked in with the Pack. You mentioned earlier coaching, volunteering with youth football. Have you entirely closed the chapter on a football career beyond that? Nothing's ever closed. It's never closed. I never closed the door on nothing besides my addiction. But, uh, you know, if the XFL come calling or any other league, they got an old heads league, you know, I'm going to come, you know, give me a chance to play, I'll go play. 
you know, the opportunity presents itself. I never close the door on it, but I have taken the steps, though, to, to be able to make sure that I'm giving back to the next generation. Are you keeping yourself in the shape necessary that you feel you could play? I'm far from playing shape, uh, but I'm getting there, you know. But right now I'm focused on my sobriety, you know, and for me that's enough. As long as I stay sober each and every day, for me that's enough. And um, I'm working out every day, you know, you know, it'll come. God got his plan for me. Okay. It feels like there's still a bit of that football player identity okay. ingrained in you. How long is that going to stick with you? Uh, I might take that with me to the grave. You know, that's something that I think would just stay me forever just because of the level of success that I had and the time that I identified it as. But um, I'm going to use that, you know, in different ways to be able to, to help the next generation, you know, the next kid who seven, eight years old who got dreams of being in the NFL. You know, mm -hmm. and giving them advice and giving them tools and resources to be successful and be better than what I was. If someone listening to this podcast is struggling with alcohol addiction or drug addiction, what's the best way for them to get help? The best way for them to get help is to admit that their life has become unmanageable and that they have a problem. Admitting is the hardest step. And as long as they can admit it to themselves, the next step is going to be just to go get help. You know, but they got to admit to themselves, they can't fight it, that they do have a problem. The longer you fight it, the worse it will become. You're wearing a hat um, says Drelieve on it. Can you explain what that is and, and what the focus of that is? Yeah, so uh, Drelief, um, it's dream and belief put together into one word that makes Drelief, if you will. And it's a 15 with a two letter in the middle of it, which is me. And that was my first touchdown going back to Canada. And the 15 was the number I wore when I came back. And so that's like my comeback number. Never stop working, you know, never give up, stay focused, and dreams do come true. Mm -hmm. Is there a plan to start a foundation or do a, a public awareness campaign with that brand? Absolutely. So we've got a, a Dream and Believe Foundation coming out, um, and it's going to be focused on helping kids that have learning disabilities, kids that, you know, bridging the gap between athletes, high school athletes and college coaches, you know, and raising the awareness of drug and alcohol prevention and recovery. That's fantastic. You're going to do a whole lot of good with this. Appreciate it, man. I hope so. Yeah. Alex Green, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, this has been really impactful and insightful. I wish you nothing but the best. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you like this conversation, feel free to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a rating or a review, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Voila.